Chapter Thirteen of Just As I Am. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Just As I Am by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter Thirteen A Plea for the Prisoner. Morton Blake sat alone in his study on the day after his evening visit to the Three Sugar Loaves, trying to bring his mind to bear on the pages of a parliamentary report but finding his thoughts inclined to wander to last night's conversation in the inn parlour, and to vain speculations upon what he had heard. Wad, the bailiff, had been right in his assertion that Morton was altogether different from his father. Walter Blake had been of an easier temper, pleasure-loving, fond of society, an ardent sportsman, with no aspiration beyond the enjoyment of the present hour, a man of warm feelings, quick impulses, winning manners, a man who could make himself popular in every society, and who had been admired and beloved in his own particular set. Beyond pleasing himself, and giving such pleasure as he could to other people, without overmuch trouble to himself, by open-handed, careless benevolence and a sympathetic nature, Morton's father had never aspired. He had taken life and all its responsibilities lightly, and had considered this world a place in which his chief mission was to be happy. Before he was twenty-one, he had plighted himself in his usual impulsive manner to Horatia Martin, the handsomest girl in the district, and before he was twenty-two and had been six months married, he found that he had made one of those mistakes with which some men give an uncomfortable twist to a whole lifetime. But Walter Blake, having found out his mistake, made the best of it. He was an admirable husband, but he was very seldom at home between breakfast and dinner. During dinner he made pretty speeches to his wife, who looked superb in evening dress and did the honours of his house admirably. After dinner the master of the house was generally to be found with his masculine guests in the billiard-room and the smoking-room. It will be seen, therefore, that Mrs. Blake did not get much of her husband's society. Bondage, thus lightly worn, hardly galled even Walter Blake's self-indulgent nature, and not even his most intimate friend discovered how little he cared for his wife. Morton was of a different temper, and for him life had another and more serious meaning. He inherited from his grandfather Geoffrey Blake something of that dogged and persevering spirit which had helped the penniless boy to fortune, something of the temper of those good old Puritan ancestors whose spotless repute in a lowly walk of life had been Geoffrey's proudest boast. Morton was ambitious. He was a strong politician. He hoped to sit in Parliament before long. He had thought deeply upon the most stirring questions of the time. He was as strong a liberal as his grandfather had been, and he had an intense sympathy with the lower classes, and a fiery indignation against all oppressive legislation. He had read much, and thought much, and was thoroughly posted in all those subjects which enable a man to converse on equal terms with the best men of his age. All his plans had been unsettled and thrown into abeyance by the events of the last six weeks. Every faculty of his mind had been concentrated upon one work and one subject. And even now, though he tried to persuade himself that all was over, that his father's cruel death was soon to be bloodily avenged, and that there was no further duty left for the son to perform, still his mind was unsatisfied, 
there were lingering doubts unsolved, and he sought in vain for rest and the power to resume his old studies with something of the old interest that had hitherto made them pleasant to him. He closed the bulky volume in which he had been reading a long debate upon the poor laws with an impatient sigh. "'It's no use,' he said to himself, getting up and beginning to pace the room, as he always did when his mind was troubled. "'I sit staring at the page while my thoughts are far away. What did that man mean by his hints and half-expressed suggestions in his cross-examination of Sir Everard? A social mystery? What mystery? And how could it concern Sir Everard?' Why did the council suggest that there might have been a break in the friendship of Sir Everard and my father? Why did he ask if there had been any trouble about Lady Courtney? No one ever hinted at such a trouble or any estrangement. What can have suggested such an idea to this scoundrel's advocate? I should like to see this Mr. Tomplin and have the matter out with him. A man has no right to drop hints of this kind if he has no ground for them. After walking slowly up and down the room for some time, he came to a standstill before the large square window looking across the lawn and shrubbery to Tangley Common, and stood there, watching the gardener sweeping the whitened paths and shovelling the fallen leaves into his barrow, in an absent-minded way, like a man who has given himself up to absolute idleness of mind and body. But his thoughts were busy all the while brooding upon points in the evidence at the trial or upon the story he had heard last night who among all the men who were out hunting that day could have had a quarrel with my father or any motive for murdering him he asked himself i must try back i must question those who knew his life at that time aunt dora for instance she lived with him for the last three years of his life and they were devoted to each other she must know everything it isn't possible that he could have made an enemy without her knowledge. People who knew him have told me that he was the most open-hearted of men. He looked across the lawn at a figure that had just entered the gate, a figure that was strange to him. It was a youngish woman, neatly clad, with the air of a respectable servant or small tradesman's wife. She was dressed in black, and as she passed in front of the study window on her way to the hall door, Morton saw that her pale face had a distressed and anxious expression. Presently he heard voices in the hall, a woman's voice pleading, and the authoritative tones of the butler answering. He opened his door and looked out. "'I can only state my business to Mr. Blake himself,' said the woman, looking piteously in at the door which the butler guarded with his bulky person. "'And he wouldn't know my name. Please say that a person in great trouble begs to see him.' "'Let her in, Andrew,' said Morton, and then turning to the woman, who entered eagerly, he said, "'Come into my study, please, and tell me your business as briefly as you can. But if it is a case of distress, would it not be better for you to see my aunt, Miss Blake? She is relieving officer to all the parish, and will be more ready to sympathise with you than I can be.' "'Oh, no, sir. I'd rather talk to you, please. This is a matter that concerns you.' "'Indeed,' said Morton, surprised. She was a nice-looking woman, of about two or three-and-thirty, with an intelligent face, bright grey eyes, and a resolute mouth, a woman who looked as if she could make her way through the world unaided, and who would trouble no one with her needs or her sorrows. She had an honest, outspoken air, which Morton liked. "'My name is Jane Barnard, sir,' she said, 
i am the eldest daughter of the miserable man who is to be hanged to-morrow week at highclere morton's face grew black as thunder then i can have nothing to say to you he exclaimed harshly and i wonder at your audacity in coming here oh sir don't say that pleaded the woman don't harden your heart against me at the first sir if i didn't know that my father is innocent of that fearful crime i would never have crossed your threshold the crime was brought home to him said morton oh the robbery sir but not the murder oh, my father has done many evil things but he was never a shedder of blood oh sir i saw him yesterday for the first time since i was eleven years old a poor feeble broken-down creature yet with something in his poor pinched old face that brought back the time when i was a child and used to clamber on his knee he swore to me that he never did that dreadful deed he took the money from the poor dead corpse but he never harmed your father it is worse than folly to come to me with such a story as this the man is condemned out of his own mouth why should he take upon himself a crime he had not committed if he wanted the shelter of a jail he would have confessed to the robbery only supposing he were guiltless of the murder he was desperate sir miserable and downtrodden a mere worm for every one to kick out of their path he was old and weak and he hadn't the pluck to take a rope and hang himself and he knew if he gave himself over to the law an end would be made of him somehow he didn't feel that he cared whether he was hanged or not his life was a burden to him and he wanted to get rid of it that is what he tried to make me understand yesterday well he has got his wish said morton gloomily he will be hanged next week oh please god not sir surely people will lift up their voices to save such a feeble wretched creature from a ghastly death his heart fails him now that he sees himself face to face with death and he prays that the poor remnant of his life may be spared although he may have to spend his last days in prison and he bade me tell you sir that he begs your pardon humbly for having made a false statement about the murder he thinks the devil must have driven him to tell those wicked lies which he told to sir everard courtenay and he prays you to help him if you can oh sir i entreat you to sign the memorial to the home secretary and to do all you can to get the sentence commuted what i am to intercede for the life of my father's murderer when after an interval of twenty years justice is about to be done i am to thrust myself in the way to prevent the carrying out of the sentence i tell you sir my father is innocent of that crime you tell me that he tells you so and i answer that i don't believe him every murderer makes the same assertion boldly doggedly asseverates his innocence till he is at the foot of the scaffold and the game is lost and then he coolly admits his guilt your father after playing the braggadocio and giving himself up in a heroic fashion turns coward at the last and recants he is not the lesser murderer because he is afraid of the gallows i will not sign the memorial 
and I shall consider any person who does sign it as something less than my friend. Sir Everard Courtney has signed it, sir. Indeed, I believe Sir Everard and Sir Nathaniel Ritherdon, the sheriff, were the gentlemen who started it. I am deeply offended with Sir Everard for his part in the matter. And now I must beg you to conclude this interview. It is painful to me, and it must be painful to you. I am not to be put aside, sir, because of a little pain. I have come all the way from America to help my father, and God helping me, I will not leave a stone unturned in my effort to save him. You have come from America on purpose, have you? Why, the man by his own account is a worthless vagabond who deserted his children and left them to rot in the workhouse. He is our father, sir, our own flesh and blood, and when we were little children and lived on this estate, he was good and kind to us. I know that he was the worse for drink sometimes, even then, and that poor mother used to be sorrowful and downhearted about him, but he was fond of us all and kind to us. It was only after your father turned us out of our home and my mother died that he went wrong altogether and left us to be taken care of by the parish. He is my father, sir, with all his faults, and I mean to do my duty to him. And there's more than that for me to consider, sir. I have a good husband and four dear children in America, and I want to clear my father of this dreadful crime for their sakes. I don't want anyone to be able to say that my father was hanged for murder, that my children have a murderer's blood in their veins. That would break my heart. My husband is a good, hard-working man who has toiled to win a respectable place in the world, and he has won it, sir. He has a dry goods store in Boston and is looked up to as an honest tradesman. And we have as good a home, sir, as any woman need wish for, though I was only a servant girl when I went out to America, and though after poor mother's death I was brought up in Highclere Union till I was fourteen years old, when they got me a nursemaid's place at a small shopkeeper's in the town. And my brothers were apprenticed, and we've all done pretty well, some at home, some abroad, thanks be to God. How did you come to know of your father's situation? One of my brothers sent me a newspaper, sir. I made up my mind to come home at once and see my unhappy father. I didn't believe he did it, even though he was his own accuser. My husband could not come with me without injuring his business, for he's not in a large way, and he has to work hard in the store himself, and he's liked and looked up to. But he gave me all the money I wanted, and he'll send me more as I want it. I hope to have been here before the trial, but the steamer only reached Liverpool the day before yesterday. There was a pause before Morton made any reply. He was standing by the window, looking out towards the common as he looked before, but seeing nothing. His brows were bent with a resolute expression which gave little hope of any softening in his feelings towards the prisoner in Highclere jail. The woman stood a few paces from him with clasped hands, watching his face piteously. "'I am very sorry for you, and I respect your purpose,' he said. "'But you cannot expect me to help you. Not until you can bring before me evidence to prove that another man was my father's murderer can I bring myself to believe in your father's innocence. He has accused himself, and he must take the consequences of his own act.' 
oh sir you are pitiless how can i produce new evidence within a week i a friendless woman in a country that is almost strange to me after eighteen years absence where and how am i to find the real murderer but i know my father is innocent he never did a cruel act in his life he was never cruel to poor dumb things that came in his way he loved his dog as it had been his child he might be weak and easily led away but never hard or cruel he could not have beaten a man's brains out on the highway for the sake of a few pounds i came to you mr blake thinking that you would help me that you who suffered the loss of your father years ago by a violent end would feel for my grief to-day i did not think it would be any satisfaction to you to have an innocent man hanged prove his innocence if you can said morton i'll try she answered and so left him with a look that was almost sublime End of chapter thirteen